Sometimes bad things happen. It's just true. Sometimes bad things happen. Take um, what happened to one of my family's favorite vacation spots this week. Here it is uh, two years ago. That's me and my sweet wife, Nikki. She was here in the first service. Uh, we went to check out a little neighborhood south of where we were staying. We rented a house right on the water. And there was a neighborhood about 10 minutes south that was all these beautiful, brand new kind of coastal homes, but built in like a 1920s plantation style. Just amazing. And the ones that were right on the beach all have their own pier. So imagine you have your own house with your own pier onto the Atlantic Ocean. I mean, it, for me, a water person, it doesn't get any better than this. I said to the kids, like, you need to take a picture of me at my future home. Like, if I could live anywhere in the world, it would be somewhere like that, with a city nearby, mind you. I like the city, but I also like the ocean. So that's us hanging out, just unbelievable. Take a look at the next picture. This is us walking home from a restaurant named Toucans. It's an institution in the town we were staying. It's literally, at this point, 100 yards behind us. So you're kind of sitting in the restaurant, and this is us walking home to our house. Nikki strayed behind us, took a picture of me and the kids walking home. Imagine you get to walk home along the beach from dinner. It was absolutely wonderful. So where were we doing all this? Here's the point. We were doing all this in Mexico Beach. Now, if you've been paying attention, of course, to the news this week, you will know that on Thursday, Mexico Beach got wiped off the map by a hurricane and a direct hit. So this chair is right in the center of town. Our house is just to the left there. You'll see a more detailed picture of our house in a minute. But we were chilling on the chair. We got some ice cream, came back and sat down and uh, had a whale of a time. One more shot. This is the view from our porch. So we rented the house through VRBO. We've had some bad experiences, you know. So every time, you know, it's kind of that thrill, right? When you drive up to your VRBO, you're like, I hope it's not like that one in Miami because that was, that was sketchy, you know. So you never know what you're going to get. It's kind of like Christmas. You unwrap it. You're like, yay or yay. <laughs> so we pulled up to the house and parked underneath it. It was one of those houses on stilts right on the ocean. And this is the view from our front porch, that little pathway on the right was our private pathway to the beach. Unbelievable. So that's my kids down there playing. It was just epic and wonderful. So I told you this is the view from our house. Uh, This is the view of our house. So that's it on Thursday. Here's the main street. Next shot, Lukey. There's the main street in town. So this point, you're looking uh, west. So the ocean's on your left. Our house is just up there, kind of in that gap. (laughs) Next picture. There it is. So Toucans is no more. It's just kind of used to be down in that blank space. It's gone. So that restaurant we went to doesn't exist anymore. 1,900 people live in Mexico Beach. 285 refused the mandatory evacuation order. We still haven't found them. One of the quotes was like, we're just not sure if we'll find them. Storm surge was so profound. What do, you, what do you say to Mexico Beach? I'll tell you what pluralist materialism says to Mexico Beach. First, what is pluralist materialism? Well, you may know, but maybe someone doesn't. It is the prevalent philosophy in our culture. Almost everybody you know subscribes to this philosophy, this way of seeing the world. They're a pluralist materialist. What does it mean? A pluralist is somebody who believes that anything goes. There is no absolute. There's no right or wrong. Do whatever you want. Whatever makes you happy, it's all right. Right? I love Sheryl Crow, but her theology sucks. If it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. Not true. But this is a pluralist thing. Just anything goes. Do whatever you want. If it makes you happy, go for it. What is a materialist? A materialist is somebody who doesn't believe in the spiritual. 
They don't believe in the ineffable. They only believe in things you can see, taste, touch, material things like my preacher stool. So they're not into God. They're not into the spirit world. They're not into anything supernatural. If I can see it, maybe I'll believe it. Pluralist materialism. So that's the prevalent view in our culture. So how does pluralist materialism answer what happened to Mexico Beach this week? They say, well, you know, it happens. I'm just glad it didn't happen to me. Glad it wasn't me. Oh, well. Whew, those poor people. Ooh, glad it wasn't me. That glad it wasn't me part is super dark, right? But you know it's, it lives in your heart, right? It's terrible. It's a terrible thing about being a fallen human. Anytime I see disaster strike, I think, oh, God have mercy. Lord have mercy. Christ have mercy. And then I do think, oh, thank God it wasn't me. How does a Jesus person answer what happened in Mexico Beach? A Jesus person says, um, let's read Isaiah 47 real quick. Maybe they say, let's read Isaiah 47 real quick. Get a load of this. <laughs> Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans. For you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind flour. Put off your veil. Strip off your robe. Uncover your legs. Pass through the rivers. Your nakedness shall be uncovered, and your disgrace shall be seen. I will take vengeance, and I will spare no one. Our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is His name, is the Holy One of Israel. Sit in silence and go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no more be called the mistress of kingdoms. I was angry with my people. I profaned my heritage. I gave them into your hand. You showed them no mercy. On the aged you made your yoke exceedingly heavy. You said, I shall be mistress forever, so that you did not lay these things to heart or remember their end. Now, therefore, hear this, you lover of pleasures, who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. These two shall come to you in a moment, in one day. The loss of children and widowhood shall come upon you in full measure, in spite of your many sorceries and the great power of your enchantments. You felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge have led you astray. And you said in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. But evil shall come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. Disaster shall fall upon you, for which you will not be able to atone. And ruin shall come upon you suddenly, of which you know nothing. Stand fast in your enchantments and your many sorceries with which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps you may be able to succeed. Perhaps you may inspire terror. You are wearied with your many counsels. Let them stand forth and save you. Those who divide the heavens, those who gaze at the stars, who at the new moon Make known what shall come upon you. Behold, they are like stubble. The fire consumes them. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. No coal for warming oneself is this. No fire to sit before. Such to you are those with whom you have labored, who have done business with you from your youth. They wander about each in his own direction. There is none to save you. You're like, whoa, Todd, I'm glad I don't have your job. No kidding. When I first read this this week, I was like, how on earth am I going to preach this? I've never preached this in my life. It's pretty clear why. 
What on earth? Okay, so here's what I got for you out of Isaiah 47. Here's the point. You won't be able to save yourself, so you better come to Jesus. Right? That's it. You won't be able to save yourself, so you better come to Jesus. Isaiah 47 is an ode to not being God's enemy. It's an ode to not being God's enemy. Because I'm your friend and I love you, I'm trying to care for you well by preaching good. I kind of isolated three things that maybe you can think about as we work our way through this incredibly difficult text. Three things that you might use as hooks to apply whatever goodness might be found in this awful text to your life this week. First, you may find some things in your heart as we work through Isaiah 47 that you can reset. There might be some resetting that you need to do, some resetting of priorities, some resetting of your focus in life. So keep that word in your mind, reset. Are there some things that I can be resetting this week in light of what I've learned in Isaiah 47? There may be some things that you can repent of this week. To repent means to stop, turn around, and begin walking in newness of life. You've been doing this. You have a moment of awakening by God's grace where you realize that what you're doing is a no-good proposition. You stop, you turn around by God's grace. With His help, you begin walking in newness of life. There may be some things that you can repent of this week in light of what we're about to study in Isaiah 47. Finally, because Jesus is the answer, you will find some things in which you can rejoice this week. I told you the only reason I agreed to preach this chapter was because of verse 11. That you will not be able to atone for, to me, is a verse full of hope. Because when someone tells me that I cannot atone for my own sins, my eyes automatically go to him who can. And his name is Jesus. And I'll get to Jesus in a few minutes. And because of what Jesus did at the cross, because his victory is so sure, you will be able to find things to rejoice in, even though today's text is basically awful. Verse 1, listen to it. Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans. For you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Come down and sit in the dust. We've talked about the word dust in Isaiah. Ofer. It's the same dust that is referred to in the opening of the book of Genesis when God crafts Adam from the dust of the earth. It's the same word that God uses when he rebukes Adam after they fall into sin and he curses him and he says, for dust you are and to dust you shall return. Ofer, dust, death. The picture here is immediately a picture of death. Come and sit in the dust. Isaiah is saying to the daughters of Babylon here, you might as well just sit down and die. To just sit down and die is the destiny of everyone, but especially the destiny of those who will not come to Jesus. We read in Scripture of the second death, and we'll actually finish today's sermon with a picture of what that might look like. Death is a central preoccupation of humanity. It's one of the things that's most interesting about our secular humanist peers, that though they don't believe in anything but what they can taste, touch, see, smell, and hear, they are horribly afraid of death. Right? If you're truly materialist, you're like, accept it. Like, I'm here today, gone tomorrow. That's how it is. No difference between me and the chair. It's just a material thing that's here for a minute, and one day it's going to perish. All right. But have you ever met a human with that kind of cavalier attitude to death? Like, never. Do you remember when you first realized that death was real? 
I was in grade two before we moved to Israel. I was six years of age, living in Newmarket, Ontario. And one of my friends from school, who also attended our church, got sick with leukemia. And I will never forget my father taking me to visit him over the months as he fought back against this disease, my six-year-old peer. And I will never forget the last time I saw him. And even I knew that he was going to die. And it was two weeks later that my dad sat me down and told me that my friend was dead. So at six and a half years of age, I had to come to grips with the reality of death for the first time. And it rocked my world. You probably had a moment like that. When death came home to you. When its realness visited itself upon you. And you probably had the same reaction that I had as a six-year-old. This is not right. The same right. Every time a human being comes in contact with death, it's a moment of horror. It's a scene of disbelief. There is a built-in revulsion we have to death. We all feel like it should not be the end. I don't want to die. Why do I have to die? Does anything happen after we die? Is there any way to avoid it? Maybe you can think now as we jump into this next section about some things that you can reset in your life, some attitudes, ideas, beliefs, misconceptions, habits that you can reset. See, the way the world sees death, the way a materialist pluralist sees death is, oh, it is what it is. There's no way to escape it. So you might as well have fun while you can. Do whatever you want. Right, if we're all going to die anyway, might as well like, enjoy yourself. You've heard the phrase, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Like, you're going to die anyway, so do whatever you want. Get as much happiness as you can. <laughs> I'm thinking of Jay-Z lyrics. Right? He's not content with riches. He wants wealth. He wants power. He wants to fly around the world in a Gulfstream 5 and live like a king. Why? Because he knows someday he's going to die. So you might as well get what you can while you can. That's how most people see death. How does a Jesus person see death? A Jesus person sees death as a consequence of sin. A Jesus person says, God made all things. He made all things good. He made us to be his friends forever. And then death entered the scene as a result of the sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve. As a result of their sin, death entered the human story and it was never meant to be part of the human story. A Christian sees all people as built for eternity. So we look at death as the great travesty. We look at it as the great wrong. We look at it as the great catastrophe and we see it as a consequence of sin. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death. And we all know one thing for sure. Everybody sins. You, me, everybody. Therefore, if the Bible is true, everybody deserves to die. This, Bible is, this sermon is full of difficult teaching from the Bible today. I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do about it. Everyone's going to die, and we all deserve it, because we're all sinners. Except Jesus. Thank God for God. Oh, man. Except Jesus. Jesus, fully God, fully man, never sinned once. In fact, he perfectly fulfilled the will of God his Father. We'll talk more about Jesus in just a minute. Except Jesus. Except Jesus. The Jesus person looks at death. Yes, reacts to the travesty of it but believes deep in their heart because Jesus ultimately triumphed 
over death that things are going to get better. It's going to get better. The non-Jesus person says, no, they ain't. And they may read the second part of verse 1 to you again. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans. Here it is. For you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Things used to be good. They ain't going to stay that way. Have you seen this attitude in your friends, peers, family members? Yeah, it used to be good, but who knows how long it's going to last. Leafs are five and one, but we'll see what happens in the playoffs. Are we not always expecting the axe to fall? We're always expecting the axe to fall. Things have been good, but they're going to get. This is the law of diminishing returns. Every secular humanist, this is what they ultimately believe about the human experience. What is a secular humanist? Okay, someone who is truly, resolutely, totally secular. Again, believes in nothing spiritual. Believes in nothing they can't taste, touch, see, hear. Okay, they, they are secular. They don't believe in God. They don't believe in the spirit world. They don't believe in anything supernatural. The material realm is all it is. They are secular. What is a humanist? A humanist is somebody who believes that humanity is the end in itself. It is the ultimate expression of beauty, glory, truth, revelation. A humanist believes that we should be on the throne, that we are the apex of creation, that we are the ultimate expression of the creative energy and power of the universe. Humans, humanists believe that within ourselves lie all the good that is needed to right the wrongs in our dark, lost, and dying world. Secular humanism. Every person who is truly a secular humanist believes in the law of diminishing returns. They hope that things will get better, but they know in their heart of hearts that they won't. It's all downhill after 17. I, I coach football at Centennial. The fall is hard for me because I spend every game day screaming my mind out, like freaking out, encouraging my boys. And then i got to come and preach twice. By Monday, my voice is just shot. I love those guys. I love coaching them. You know what is so depressing about being a football coach? That I don't get to play anymore. I watch them running up and down and sprinting and hitting each other. And I was like, put me in, coach. But the truth is, if they put me in, I'd walk out five minutes later with a pulled hamstring. Oh, to be 17 again. And our culture knows it, right? It's archetypal in our culture, in our arts. I'll never forget, first time I heard Bruce Springsteen's Glory Days. Remember that song? Glory Days. Passing by glory days, remember? In the light of a young girl's eye, glory days, glory days. Right, it was better when I was 17. The law of diminishing returns. Except, well, except Jesus. Except Jesus. You know what the way of Jesus says? Those who follow Jesus believe, live, and say, your best days are ahead of you. Best days are ahead of you, baby. Glory days aren't passing by, they're coming. And the glory and awesomeness of Christ and His kingdom. There's a stark contrast between the way God's people see and experience life and the way in which God's enemies do. 
In light of this, maybe you need to reset your expectations. Maybe you've been thinking about life like God's enemies think about life. Maybe you need to stop expecting the axe to fall and you need to start expecting good things to come. (sighs) Maybe you need to reset and remind yourself that evil's going to pay. Verse 2 through 5. Take the millstones and grind flour. Put off your veil, strip off your robe, uncover your legs, pass through the rivers. Your nakedness shall be uncovered and your disgrace shall be seen. I will take vengeance and I will spare no one. Our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, is his name, is the Holy One of Israel. Sit in silence and go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no more be called the mistress of kingdoms. Here we see a picture of the young women of Babylon carried off into captivity by the armies of King Cyrus of Persia. This prophecy would have been intended for the people of Jerusalem who were carried off in like manner into captivity in Babylon in 587 B.C. under the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And so when the original hearers would have heard these lines, they would have thought, that's right. You're going to get yours, O daughter of Babylon. What you did to us, our God is going to do to you. Here we see a picture of the daughters of Babylon herded into long trains of people and marched off into captivity. Most of the men would have been killed. You'd have the women, you'd have the aged men, and you'd have the children. And they're forcibly marched off into captivity. And when they come to a river, the army just forces them to wade through it. And so because they're wearing whatever they own, and wouldn't want to get it wet, and wouldn't get sucked into the river, they would remove their clothing in order to try and survive their passage through the river. And in the ancient Near East, to uncover one's nakedness, especially for a woman, would have been the ultimate shame, the ultimate moment of embarrassment. And you can bet that the Persian soldiers, we see this writ throughout human history. We have footage of this throughout human history. Ravaging, conquering soldiers, standing by and mocking the conquered people as they are forced to uncover themselves, unclothe themselves in the presence of their captors and march off into captivity. Auschwitz. You've seen the footage. You know exactly what this image is talking about. Now, we gentle Westerners may think, this is pretty awful. I I can't really get excited, Todd, about... God punishing these people. When you tell me that evil is ultimately going to pay, that doesn't make me want to jump up and down. The only reason that might be true in us is because we live in the sheltered West where most of us have never suffered. To us, evil is a construct. It's an idea. But I'm here to tell you that in the wider world, it is not so. Evil is real. I'll never forget sitting in my brother-in-law's house in Montreal several years ago when the news broke about ISIS taking out, what was it, 120 of our Christian brothers, forcing them to kneel on the sands of the beaches of the Mediterranean in Egypt, beheading them all at once, filming it and putting it on the internet. I was so disturbed by that that I literally walked down into the basement 
and sat in figurative dust and ashes in that basement before the Lord, groaning for my Egyptian brothers. I was literally undone by that act of evil. And the reality of our world, and you know this, if you've lived any length of time at all, or if you have any awareness of the world beyond Guelph at all, you know that evil is real. The number of girls who are sold into the sex trade in the city of Guelph is frightening. Evil is real. It's not a construct. To these original listeners, when they would have heard these words, they would have rejoiced greatly because they had suffered greatly. So let us not be quick as gentle, sheltered Westerners to stand in judgment over God the judge who is here committing in Isaiah 47 to one day put an end to evil once and for all. There's great hope here for God's people. Evil will not run unchecked forever. And I don't know about you, personally, I don't want to live in an eternal kingdom where rapists get to go on raping forever. I don't want to be at play in the fields of the Lord worrying about the murderers who will go on murdering forever. Or the cheats who will go on cheating forever. Right? Isn't it ridiculous? Like, God should just be kind to everyone. Right. Says someone who's never suffered anything. God's going to deal with evil once and for all. Verse 3b. Hear it. I will take vengeance. I will spare no one. Now here's where the English translators fall down a little bit. I will spare no one. Literally in the Hebrew is velo ifga adam. If God is to touch, I will not touch a man. I will not be touched as a man. It's, I think, better or more appropriate to interpret it this way. I will not meet you as a man. That here is helping us reset our expectations. We think when we're dealing with God that we're dealing with a person. We think we have the right to judge him as a person. We think we have the right to judge his behavior as if he's just a man. He's saying here, I will not deal with you as a man. We are dealing here with the God of the universe. He's the one who says, I will repay. Vengeance is mine in Romans 12, 17. God is the one who will take vengeance. He is the one who will repay every wrong that was ever done. Here's an encouraging point for us. You don't got to get even because God will repay. So maybe you've been walking around for decades with a hard knot in your heart over some evil that was done to you in the past. In light of the fact that God will repay, you can let that go. You can let that knot go, even now. You don't ever have to repay that person. You don't have to plan how to do it. You can let it go, because God will repay. In light of that, you can probably reset your behavior. Look, the imperative here is very strong. Either God exists or he doesn't. If God doesn't exist, then in the face of evil, good luck to you. I mean, do whatever you want. Too bad about Mexico Beach. Oh, well, I'm glad it wasn't me. But if God does exist, here's your answer to Mexico Beach. God will pay. God will pay. More on that in a minute. Why will God pay? Well, because ultimately the world and everything in it belongs to God. Verse 4, our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, is His name, is the Holy One of Israel. I already told you what the Lord of hosts means. Adonai Tzvaot, the God of armies, the warrior God, 
There was beautiful symmetry in the story of Mexico, this, Mexico Beach this week. As I looked at the news, you know who the first ones to go into the city were on the morning after? The army, the National Guard. And I was busy reading this verse about the Lord of armies. And I thought, oh, Lord, you're beautiful. The National Guard, the army, the Lord God of Israel, the Lord of armies is his name. He is working all things together for his good, for the joy of his people, and ultimately for the good of the world. So the question occurs to us, um, what about the Jesus people in Mexico Beach? What about them? There were churches in Mexico Beach. There were Jesus people in Mexico Beach. What about them? Here's how we answer that. We answer this carefully. And with humility, we say, you know what? The Lord will lead them closely through this valley of the shadow of death. And if you've ever walked through the valley of the shadow of death, you know it's okay to say that because you know it's true. The Lord will walk closely with them through this valley of the shadow of death. And in that fellowship with him, they will find much joy. And that joy is not a fleeting or a passing joy. Right? That joy will stay with them forever. That joy of close fellowship with God bought in the midst of suffering will be theirs forever. And they will come, either now or someday then, to a moment when they see God's plan for what it was and they give Him praise. The Jesus person, even from Mexico Beach, defers their judgment and places it upon God's judgment. They say, Lord, I don't know what to do with this. I don't have an answer for this, but blessed be your name, you do. That's why faith is strength. That's why faith is inspiring. This is how faith changes your life. This is how faith changes a culture. As people who live through devastation keep their eyes on the Lord God of Israel, keep their hope in him, and keep on believing for a brighter day. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And let's be honest. Looking at verse 6, how could we not be? I was angry with my people. I profaned my heritage. I gave them into your hand. You showed them no mercy. On the aged you made your yoke exceedingly heavy. Let's be honest that God disciplining his people is part of how God rolls. Now we may not know why, but we do know a couple things for sure. We know that even when God disciplines us, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Even when God disciplines us, we know that the Lord disciplines them whom he loves, Hebrews 12, 6. So Todd, what about the innocent people who died or lost everything? Here's the hardest theological thought of this entire sermon. From a biblical point of view, there are no innocent people. None. A two-year-old is innocent. No, they're not. They're born in sin. Well, I'm innocent. No, you're not. It's hard, right? I joked in the first service. I'm like, welcome to Grace Community Church. You can see that I am absolutely focused on church growth here at any cost. That's why I preach these impossible, difficult, offensive sermons. Help me, Jesus. I'm not innocent. You're not innocent. Nobody's innocent. Except, except Jesus. Don't worry, he's going to show up in just a second. So we go through this last section here. See if you can't spot even the slightest bit of you here. I'll pray for your soul like I pray for mine. Verses 8 through 11. Now therefore hear this, you lover of pleasures, who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am and there is no one beside me. I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. 
These two things shall come to you in a moment, in one day. The loss of children and widowhood shall come upon you in full measure, in spite of your many sorceries and the great power of your enchantments. You felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray, and you said in your heart, I am, and there is no one beside me. But evil shall come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. Disaster shall fall upon you, for which you will not be able to atone. And ruin shall come upon you suddenly, of which you know nothing. This is downright terrifying. So, let's examine my life. Maybe you can think of yours. Verse 8, you lover of pleasures. (sighs) Check. Still in verse 8, those of you who are secure in your own awesomeness. Oh, crap. Check. Still verse 8. Hopefully we move on eventually. Um, Those of you who are convinced in your heart, even if you won't admit it, that you see life through a lens that always puts you at the center of it. Check. Verse 8. Secretly sure that nothing bad is ever going to happen to you and therefore deeply horrified and even offended when anything less than perfect does. Oh, check. Check! Checkmate! Checkmate, I lose. Verse 9. Whew, does it get better? Oh, no. So preoccupied with figuring things out and micromanaging my future that in the 500s BC, they would have considered me a sorcerer? Check! Maybe it's time to repent of the excessive micromanaging we all do of our lives. We stop five year planning. Freedom 55? Damn it. I'm not cussing. I'm saying biblical words. Let it go to hell. Excessively planning. Like, we're in charge. Verse 10. Sure that no one sees my wickedness. Check. Arrogant in my own hard-earned wisdom. Check. We're in very deep trouble, and we haven't even gotten to you yet. I'm almost done. Verse 11 is the key to everything. Verse 11 is the only reason I agreed to preach this text. Oh, man. Disaster shall fall upon you, for which you will not be able to atone. When I read that verse, I had my eureka moment. I was like, this will preach. I can't atone for my own sin. Hooray! If I can't atone for my own sin, I don't need to keep trying to atone for my own sin. I don't, need to stop, I don't need to keep beating myself up for my failure to atone for my own sin. This is mind-blowing. No one can save you except Jesus. Jesus. God the Son made flesh who entered into space-time history. Fully God and fully man. Never sinned once. Perfectly fulfilled the will of His Father. Walked in perfect, unbroken relationship with God, his Father. Full of the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, who was healing people everywhere he went. Constantly preaching. Telling people the kingdom of God had come near in him. Reaching out to the the outcast, the downtrodden, and the oppressed. Saying, come on home and hang out with me. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. I and the Father are one. Like the best, the greatest, the awesomest, the most beautiful, glorious Savior of the world, who in the fullness of time went to a Roman cross, was hung there between two thieves. Why? So that as he hung there, God his Father could place on him the iniquities of us all, so that our badness could go to Jesus and his goodness could come to us, so that he could atone for our sins. 
He could make atonement for that which we could not atone for. He pays for Mexico Beach as He hangs upon the cross. This is why He says as He dies, it is finished. So we lay the wreckage of Mexico Beach at the foot of the cross. You lay the wreckage of your life at the foot of the cross. And you don't have to make answer for it because He does. Hallelujah. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had cast a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Two possible responses to this. One, keep your stiff upper lip. Keep doing your best. I don't know, hope for the best. Or bow the knee to Jesus. And trust in his victory. Now look, if you want to go the other way, finish with this, it's not going to go well. Worship team, you can come join me. It's not going to go well. Verses 12 through 14 as I close. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart. Wrong chapter. Here we go. Stand fast in your enchantments and your many sorceries with which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps you will be able to succeed. Perhaps you may inspire terror. You are wearied with your many counsels. Let them stand forth and save you. Those who divide the heavens, who gaze at the stars, who at the new moons make known what shall come upon you. Behold, they are like stubble. The fire consumes them. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. No coal for warming oneself is this. No fire to sit before. If you're determined to go your own way, the best you can hope for is perhaps. The best you can hope for is maybe. And ultimately what's going to happen to you is this. Ve'esh saraftam. Verse 14. Does it sound horrible? Ve'esh saraftam. I hope it sounds horrible because it is. The fire consumes them. Now look. I much prefer to read you the beautiful and triumphant sections from the end of the book of Revelation, but today I need to read you something truly awful. Hear the awful, horrific, horrendous, appalling words of Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, the earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. He's so fearsome that even the created order flees from before him. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he or she was thrown into the lake of fire. Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy. That passage ought to strike fear and loathing in all of our hearts. No coal for warming is this. No fire to sit before. You don't want to be God's enemy. You just don't. So in light of this, there may be some things in your life that you need to reset. There may be some things in your life that you need to repent of. And because Jesus has made the once and final answer to your sin problem, you may need to go out 
this week in light of this horrible sermon and rejoice in Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, the one who turns horrible things into beauty, who gives you beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, the bright and morning star, the one who is coming back to make all things right and to inaugurate his kingdom which will have no end, a kingdom in which there is neither sorrow nor weeping nor mourning nor suffering nor sin nor death. So you can go out and rejoice this week. Do not do what you've always done. Do not do what they do in verse 15. Such to you are those with whom you have labored, who have done business with you from your youth. They wander about each in his own direction. There is no one to save you. All these people you know who are doing whatever seems right to them. Do not live your life that way. Do not live like a good secular humanist, pluralist, materialist. Instead, live like one of Jesus' people. Do not look at Mexico Beach and say, oh, well, hitch happens. I'm just glad it didn't happen to me. Don't live like that because there's no one to save them. Except, well, except Jesus. Jesus.